0: The following sermon is by Hunter Hayes, Associate Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at com. And now, here's Pastor Hunter. We humans are drawn to performance-based religion. We love to invent and participate in all kinds of methods and Rituals that lead us to spiritual well-being. We gravitate towards checklists and merit systems because they give us the illusion of control. If piety is about how much godliness I can achieve, then all I have to do is add a little bit more here, make a little self-sacrifice there, and I'll be well on my way. You don't even have to believe in God to get caught up in trying to be a good person. You measure your own goodness in terms of how much you do for other humans or how much you sympathize with the troubles of fellow man. We all love religions that tell us, do this, say this many prayers, attend this many religious services, offer up such and such number of sacrifices each year, and you'll be good. All you have to do is look at all the religions there are. In the world. And you'll agree with me, I think, that we humans just can't stop inventing ways to earn our salvation. We tend to shy away, however, from religion that promises that the way to salvation is insurmountable for us. And we don't like to be told, you can't do it. We're not a fan of anyone telling us, you're not good enough. And it's not just because it messes with our ego. We're troubled by revelations of our unworthiness because deep down inside we know it's true and we're scared of this and we don't know what to do about it. And for people who love to do things to solve our problems, it leaves our feet dangling in the water when we realize there's nothing that we can just do. And that's one of the reasons why the Bible's teaching about human nature is so off putting to most people, I think. If it's true that our problem goes so deep to the very core of who we are, then there's not a lot of options for us. If deep down inside we're not good people, then we can't work out the goodness in us. We need a complete overhaul. We need the Bible's teaching on human depravity more than ever in the age we're living in because fewer people choose to grapple with this reality. We see horrific images on our TV screens and our phones, and we think in the stillness of our heart, certainly I could never plunge to such depths. And we create all sorts of explanations for why people do evil things. Well, you see, the murderer, he had a backstory. He would never have done that if he had a more privileged upbringing. He was driven to his crimes. We don't want to wrestle with the reality that there's something innate about us that makes us prone to evil deeds because we really want it to be the other way around. If we're all basically good or even morally neutral, then we can make it better by choosing good. So we believe. The Bible tells it to us straight. It says, There is no one good. All have fallen short. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. That's Jeremiah 17 9. The problem is that our hearts are bad. We are rotten to the core. Jesus taught this principle when he said, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. This is in Matthew 15. And he says, Whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Our issues as human beings are more than just skin deep, and this presents a problem. Because if who I am is broken, then it takes something outside of myself to fix it. And the lack of control over our situation makes us scared. And if you're honest with yourself, I hope you recognize this is the case, and I hope we can learn this biblical lesson from the teaching of Deuteronomy. Turn there with me, and our main text this morning is going to be Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, (laughs) but we're going to read a lot more of Deuteronomy than just Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I I want to start with a verse that our brother just read for us, Deuteronomy 10, 16, and I'm just asking you to... Keep your finger there, and, and we're, we might do a little bit of jumping around. But this is, this is what uh, we need to hear in the, in the age we're living in. If our hearts are really broken beyond repair, then imagine the frustration of hearing Moses tell the children of Israel to circumcise your heart and be no longer stubborn. Okay, put your, shoes in the, put your, put your feet in the shoes of uh, the Israelites standing there. I want to suggest this morning that this command to circumcise your heart is exactly what's necessary for us to know God, and it's impossible for us to do on our own, and we'll show that. This is much different than physical circumcision, okay, Uh, which is the point of reference Israel had when Moses told them to circumcise their hearts. God commanded Abraham to take a knife to one of the most sensitive areas of his body and perform surgery as a sign of good things to come. In fact, everyone born in Abraham's line and everyone in his house was to have this surgery performed, and in God's mercy, it was, aside from Abraham, it was supposed to be performed on those who were eight days old, so they were younger, and it might not be quite as sensitive, and it would be a perpetual reminder of the covenant that God made with Abraham. So why does Moses tell the people to circumcise their hearts? Allow me to give you just two insights quickly into the meaning of circumcision in the Bible, and hopefully that will help us see the power of this metaphor. Uh, The circumcision that's done physically is a removal of the foreskin, and from the best Bible scholars can tell, it was a ritual performed on the priestly class to initiate them into service in Egyptian culture. And Abraham, who we know traveled in Egypt and was very acquainted with their culture, may have been aware of this association of circumcision and what it meant. So then it would have made sense to Abraham that God wanted him to perform this act of consecration because in the very context where he gives circumcision, he tells Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. And you can reference this in Genesis 17 too. I'm not asking you to turn there. The command to walk before me and be blameless is an invitation to Abraham to be a sort of priest, a representative to all the nations of what a relationship with God looks like. God tells Abraham that every male in his household and every male born into his line must be circumcised as well. And this makes sense because the chosen nation descended from Abraham was called a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19.6. So Israel had this priestly status, They had this covenant sign of circumcision. So what does the call to circumcise their hearts mean? It's a call to consecrate the very core of who they are to Yahweh and to his service. The Lord wants not just a physical outward symbol of their dedication to him, but an inward true reality. And in order for this to become a reality, they must be circumcised in their hearts. Circumcision is, is used as a metaphor elsewhere in the Bible. Do you remember when God told Moses to go speak to Pharaoh and say, let my people go? Do you remember how he responded? Well, he said in, in Exodus six twelve, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me for I'm a man of uncircumcised lips? So what's he saying? Well, Moses is referring to a weakness that he had in which he He perceived about himself that he's not an effective communicator. He actually actually speaks of this lack of eloquence elsewhere. Isn't it funny, though, that he compares this lack of eloquence to being uncircumcised? Why would he do that? Well, uncircumcision is commonly used to refer to things in the Bible that are ineffective and fail to function as they should. People's ears are uncircumcised when they fail to hear the word of God, Israel's heart is called uncircumcised when it's not devoted to Yahweh. And like Moses' ineffective lips, Israel's heart is incapable of serving Yahweh effectively. And just to prove it to you, I want to show you Moses' words to Israel on the plains of Moab just before they were about to enter the Promised Land. That is the setting of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is is addressed to the new generation— that has arisen after the one that that God brought out of Egypt, after that one has died off in the wilderness. God made them wander for 40 years. And the ones that are now standing here, about to enter the promised land, they're ready. They're ready to go in. They've heard the stories of everything that God did for them. They know the promises. It's time for fulfillment. And so Moses, in in a sermon... In a, in a recollection, a reiteration of the covenant, he recounts for the people a brief history of their existence. And he reiterates the covenant made at Sinai. And Moses talks about the triumphs and the successes, how they watched God decimate their enemies, and he also recalls their failures. And to help us understand what an uncircumcised heart looks like, I think there could be better, no better place than to just look at Moses' words to Israel. So this is a reiteration of the covenant for the generation about to enter the promised land. And Moses chooses to remind them, first of all, about the previous generation's failure to enter and subdue the land. He begins his sermon with this reference to what happened. He points back and says, you know that your fathers did not enter the land which you were about to enter. Let's examine this more closely, and he's going to be our teacher. So in Deuteronomy 121, he says, See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not, be, do not fear or be dismayed. But the Israelites cowered in fear when the report came back from the spies about the Canaanite inhabitants. He's reminding them the first go-around When they could have gone in and accepted the fulfillment, they feared. They murmured in their tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim here. So their hearts failed in the very thing which God was testing them. And brothers and sisters, this is the first way that our hearts betray our utter sinfulness, okay? We fail to believe God and his word, and we accuse him of evil intentions. I know that we're so sinful because I've done this myself, okay? Have you ever been in a situation where, like the Israelites, you're brought to some great precipice from, where, from your vantage point, it seems like the difficulties ahead of you will lead to your complete ruin? Have you ever, in that moment, been tempted to think that God brought you to this point in life just so that he could make a spectacle out of you? Have you grumbled in your heart because you doubt his good intentions? When God tells us, and he, ta- he does tell us this, count it all joy, my brothers— when you encounter various trials for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness do you throw in the towel and say this is my limit i'm done i cannot make it any further because of their unbelief god made an entire generation the generation that was rescued miraculously from the snares of egypt the generation that actually walked through the red sea i mean they saw god's power They lived it. They experienced it. God made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and they didn't enter the promised land. So Moses reminds the Israelites of this. And after recounting this failure, Moses goes on to remind the Israelites about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So the actual moment when God came down and gave the law to Moses was a spectacular ordeal, nothing less than that. It was lightning and peals of thunder, and the people were very afraid. And this is because from a distance they could see they were coming into proximity of the holy ruler of the earth. God was making a display, okay? As he's giving the law, he's showing God is... In the building, as it were. And it's terrifying. Listen to the response. And note that while the the fear of the Canaanites was a bad thing, fear of God is actually an appropriate response. God will tell us this much. In Deuteronomy 5:16, the people say, And you said, or sorry, this is Moses we're counting. He says, "And you said, behold the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore why should we die for this great fire will consume us? If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die." For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. We will hear and do it. They're saying, Moses, you go talk to God for us because we don't want to go up on that mountain or we will die. Here they recognize their need for an intercessor, one who goes between God and man because the holy cannot dwell with the unclean. The glory of the Lord would eviscerate the sinful thing it comes into contact with. And there's a sense of this, a palpable sense that the Israelites beheld with their eyes. And there's a proper fear and reverence for Yahweh when his glory is revealed. But listen, I want you to listen to God's interpretation of this. Because he speaks to Moses on the mountain and he says in Deuteronomy five twenty nine, oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And this is where another shortcoming of our hearts comes to the fore. We don't have a proper and consistent and unyielding fear of the Lord. We, like the Israelites, may have moments where we grasp the awesome weight and consuming fire of God's holiness, but we quickly forget. We lose sight of his terrible fury and wrath towards sin. Uh, There's a man by the name of Michael Gungor uh, who is a prominent musician, and he used to be a worship leader in a megachurch, and I've listened to his music, and I think he's an incredibly talented musician. And I, I, I like to listen to some of his older stuff, for sure. And some of his new as well, I, I suppose. But he, uh, he used to be a worship leader is the key term there. He's, he deconstructed his faith, as much as that's possible, I guess. And now he identifies as a sort of mystic, or he sometimes associates himself with the orthodox But he has some considerable influence as a public figure, which is why I'll mention to you what I'm about to mention to you. He's known for his edgy remarks about religion, and one thing I saw in a recent Twitter post caught my eye, and I'm going to put up the quotes so you know I'm saying what he said, not what I say. Yeshua is Allah. Shalom. Still quoting. If you are a Christian and you have any problems with that sentence, it's 100% only your own bigotry making you feel uneasy with it. That's as orthodox Christian of a sentence could be. Unquote. Well, I'm a Christian, and I have a problem with that sentence. (laughs) And it's not because I'm a bigot, though I do suppose it's probably true that I At times, unfairly and self-righteously look down on others. Okay, I'm willing to take that, uh, that blame. But I would never support a sentence like this because it equates Yahweh with a false God. And that's a dreadful thing to do. And I'm actually terrified of what that means because, as we know, Yahweh is holy. He says of himself in Exodus 20, verse 5, When he explains the second commandment, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Mr. Gungor's statement that he made on Twitter shows a confident and settled disdain for the God revealed on the pages of Scripture. Jesus said in John 8 that I and the Father are one. He calls himself one with the Father. And I don't know how many know this, but Islam says it's blasphemy to say that God has a son. Uh, Even today on the Dome of the Rock, there's this inscription that says, the Messiah Jesus, son of Mary, was only a messenger of God, and his word which he conveyed unto Mary and a spirit from him. So believe in God and his messengers and say not three, cease, I think that's a blasphemous statement, too. It might be more blasphemous than Gungor's, but it also entirely dismantles his statement that Allah and Yeshua are the same. But really, I think there's a more serious thing here, and it's a peril for Mr. Gungor, and I, I truly sorrow for him because the Lord tells us in James 3, 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. And so my heart truly sorrows for this man who has such a cavalier attitude and takes it upon himself to be an influencer because verses like James 3.1 remind us that God will hold everyone accountable who leads people astray. And Jesus himself said it would be better for someone to have a millstone hung around his neck and be cast into the sea than to mislead or cause one of his little ones to stumble. This is a, a minor side lesson for us, but we need to allow the fear of God to influence how we use our keyboards, do we not? We need to live as though he's listening to everything we say and watching every interaction we have. And sadly, as I look at what goes on online, I do not see, even Christians at times, living with this kind of fear God is an exclusive God. He will not compete with rivals. He will share his glory with no other. And that is why a key theme in the message of the whole book of Deuteronomy is found in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And this, brothers and sisters reveals yet another way that our hearts fail to function as they ought. And if you're honest with yourself, you know this is true. Yahweh demanded exclusive loyalty, all-encompassing loyalty, meaning there's no room for idols. And the commandments and rules Yahweh gave to Israel were to be the guiding principle in their hearts, helping them to live out the command to love Yahweh. But don't you see? This is where rules and regulations fail. This is where a checklist is not good enough. If it were simply a matter of do this and you'll live, then couldn't somebody just check off all the boxes? Like the rich young ruler? This is why the Mosaic Law was not designed to bring about salvation. It could not affect the heart change required to restore fallen creatures. We were made to worship God and to delight in all of his ways, and yet even the most moral person among us fails to give him the glory and worship him and love him the way he deserves. And actually, the, one of the last things that Moses mentions before he says before he gives the command to circumcise your heart, is also instructive for us. Moses mentions the episode with the golden calf, which many of us can recall from memory. While Moses was still on Mount Sinai, that terrifying (laughs) ordeal, hearing the words of God and bringing the law to the people They commit that heinous sin where they make the golden calf and they worship right as Yahweh has just told them, you shall not make a graven image and you shall have no other gods before me. This is the religious equivalent of getting caught in the act of adultery on the honeymoon. And Moses brings this up, I think the order I think bringing it up as the last thing he mentions from a sinful perspective that Israel had done. He brings this up to remind them of their troublesome past. And he says, he, he, he recalls how Yahweh told him at this time in Deuteronomy nine, thirteen, and 14, this is what God said. I have seen this people and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they And I think it's easy for us to look back from our vantage point and to wag the finger at disobedient Israel, but we've also got to grasp that this is the unfaithfulness that's present in our hearts. We are just as capable of receiving God's grace and goodness in our lives and turning around and playing with the idols of our hearts like God can't see what's going on. In God's forbearance, he did spare that generation— even though he told Moses he was going to destroy them. Moses said that he pled for them for 40 nights, face down on the ground. And if you study the content of what he prayed, it's actually not even about the worthiness of the people to be spared. It's about the Lord's glory and the Lord's reputation and what the nations would think if he just brought them out of Egypt and then destroyed them in the desert. So Moses recounts all these things and the troublesome history of Israel's past, and he says in Deuteronomy 1016, as Wally read for us earlier, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. What's required is heart surgery. You've got to remove the impediment that is making your heart function improperly, like a hard shell around a calloused, tender fruit. How? This is the question you got to be asking. How? How can we do this? I mean, I understand the command to circumcise my flesh. I take a knife. It hurts me. And then it's done. But how do I circumcise my heart? How do I access it to do this kind of a surgery? And that brings me now finally to the text that I have for us this morning. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. A lot more has happened in Deuteronomy, and I'll explain some of it, but I have an ineffective watch. (laughs) It has uh, failed on me, so I will try to uh, be quick here. But Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So let's just start in this verse with and. This conjunction indicates that this is part of a sequence that has already been set in motion in the discourse. So Moses is in the context of Deuteronomy 30. He's anticipating future events now. In Israel's life as a nation. And if we just reference verses 4 and 5, which hopefully you're there in Deuteronomy 30 right now, they fit into a larger context of explaining to a future repentant generation. And we see that Moses anticipates Israel being gathered in from the nations where God will exile them due to their disloyalty to the covenant, and according to this anticipation the Lord will bring them into the land that their fathers possessed and make them more prosperous and numerous than their fathers. Don't you love that God already knew what was going to happen in Israel's history before it even happened? He I mean he spelled it out in the covenant. He gave them blessings and curses and he said these curses are going to come upon you and when they do and when I drive you out of the land because you're not going to stay there for long This is what will happen. The Lord God will circumcise your heart. The Lord says He's going to do it. So, once Israel comes to grips with the fact that this heart change cannot happen apart from the Lord's grace, I think that's the purpose of the law, is to show the failure every time you try to keep it that you do not have it in you to obey. Just when you think it's all over, the Lord intervenes. And He is the only one that can fix stubborn hearts. There's echoes of this in Ezekiel 36, that famous passage about the new covenant. Verse 26 of Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And brothers and sisters, this is our hope. This was Israel's hope, this is our hope, that the Lord offers a heart renewal that only he can supply. So what does God actually do in this heart circumcision? He removes the stubbornness. He softens the hard heart of unbelief that will not follow him in simple childlike faith. The Lord does this. Isn't that amazing? He makes it sensitive to his call. This is the surgery that God performs on hearts and and we hear a reference to this need in Jeremiah 4, 3 through 4. This is actually the third. There are three references to heart circumcision in the Bible. This is the third one. Now, this is the prophets talking to Israel. He says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. The Lord does a work in the human heart that is nothing short of revitalization it becomes soft. It becomes tender. It becomes capable of bearing fruit. And this is our hope. So what does a circumcised heart look like? What does it actually look like? I'll give you a few characteristics. First and most importantly, it responds in faith to the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is illustrated for us powerfully when Peter gives his sermon on Pentecost shortly after the Lord ascended to heaven. Peter speaking to Jews gathered in Jerusalem And then a few verses later, he says, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so how do I know that the circumcised heart is one that responds to this message of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that's in him? Well, all you have to do is look at at Acts 2.37. It says that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They responded... In faith, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's it's amazing. God saves three thousand people that day. Three thousand people whose hearts have been changed. The circumcised heart responds to the message of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the circumcised heart submits itself to God and his ways, not out of compulsion, but willingly. We saw in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, it describes the outcome of circumcision. It says that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The circumcised heart actually wants to do God's will. Jesus declared this was the greatest commandment. Did he not? So do you see that Jesus is calling for nothing less than a transformed heart, Paul made a distinction between Jews who relied on the law and boasted in God, though in reality their lives were characterized by hypocritical lip service. He said in Romans 2, 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The heart that is circumcised is not beset by ulterior motives. It is tender and sensitive to the Spirit's leading, it submits to God's law. And the third characteristic of a, a heart that's circumcised is it's characterized by humble repentance. And I would ask you just quickly to turn to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26, and we have another description in this chapter of what God plans to do for Israel in the future. And in Leviticus 26, verses 40 and 41, He spells it out. He says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So notice that here in this passage, the description of what happens to their uncircumcised heart is that it's humbled, and they confess their iniquities. They are penitent and recognize their sin, and they want to make amends. So the circumcised heart is the heart whose rock-hard calluses have been removed. It's humble before the Lord, and it turns to him repenting of sin and asking for forgiveness. There's no life in your heart if you think you don't need forgiveness. So back to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Don't miss, don't miss this. It's important. He says, your heart and the heart of your offspring. So we just, we can't separate this promise from the people to whom it was promised. Ever since Abraham, God has made promises to those who are ethnically related to Abraham. The promise extends to others who follow after Abraham in faith as well. Okay, you and me but it doesn't skip over or transfer from them. And this is, this is the beauty of the Bible and God's great, great plan. We have to believe God when he says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved. It's amazing and it's true. God can save Israel. The disciples knew this even after Jesus rose and went to heaven. Peter, in that same exact sermon that I just quoted for you earlier, He said, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. God's gonna save them. God will give them a heart of repentance, though they reject their Messiah now. I don't don't know how it's gonna happen or the, the means he's gonna use to do it, but I just leave the timing up to him. But if you're a believer in Christ today and you're here with us, I wanna show you that this heart transformation that's talked about about Israel and in these terms of circumcision, I want to show you that this transformation has actually taken place in your heart. And if not, if you don't have this heart transformation, I want you to be warned, and I also want you to be encouraged, okay? So that's, that's why I entitled this sermon, How's Your Heart? How's Your Heart? First, let me make a point of contrast with those who are still living under the Old Covenant. So as the Jews who rejected Jesus and they rejected the invitation of the apostles. Paul, who was himself a former Pharisee and persecutor of Christ, points out about his own Jewish brethren, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So only by coming to Christ can this veil be lifted. And Stephen Some of us remember he's the the one who was martyred in Acts 7. He was stoned to death after giving a great sermon. So if you all throw stones at me, um, I guess I should rejoice. (laughs) He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the the Holy Spirit. And he was specifically calling out in this moment their rejection of Jesus, whom he says, you have now betrayed and murdered. But in contrast to this, in contrast to those who are not accepting Jesus, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I don't think you can get much more of a uh, direct statement about heart transformation beginning with coming to know Jesus. Jesus himself said, If anyone believes in me, uh, if anyone thirsts, sorry, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then Paul instructs believers in Ephesians four seventeen through 18, This I say to you and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So what's the point of all this? Well, the point is to say that whoever comes to Christ has had a miraculous thing occur. He changes your desires and affections. It's why the Bible speaks of walking in newness of life. I encourage you, everyone here, to do something potentially embarrassing and maybe a little difficult for us. Ask those closest to you who know you best, do you see evidence of a tender heart in me that responds to God? Okay, I might ask my wife this. Uh, Ask, do you recognize it in the way that I live and the way I respond to reproof and correction? Do you see it in the way I long to follow Christ and his commands? Ultimately, no one can actually know your heart just from the things you do on the outside, which is why this reality about the heart is so dangerous and serious But ask yourself, how do you respond to the testimony of believers that God's put in your life, of the preaching of the word that God's put all around you? Is there softness? Is there a willingness to turn from pride and self-centeredness? Or are you stubborn and resistant on the inside? I know there are many people in the church who consider themselves Christians, but they've never really had the heart renewal we're talking about. If that's you and you recognize it, And you're concerned about this, let me encourage you now. That's the place you have to start. You can't come to know Christ if you don't know you need him or you're too caught up in yourself. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus said, he said, you're blessed. Receive him into your life and he'll give you new birth. I also know that there's some born-again Christians who struggle wondering if they've actually received the transformed heart. You look at your, your struggle with sin and, and the difficulties that you have, and you wonder if God has actually even made you new. And let me just encourage you with one passage that's near and dear to my heart, Titus 3, 3-8. so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now listen to this, verse eight. This, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So in this one passage, Paul teaches both regeneration and renewal of our hearts, as well as the need to be careful for believers to be careful to be devoted to good works. So then... We can conclude that God does this amazing act of grace in our lives, but there's still a need for us to persist and contribute effort to persisting in good works. If he made us perfect when we came to Christ, we'd never mess up, and all we'd need to do is just live, and it would just flow from us like lava from a volcano. (laughs) But on the contrary, believers are told to put to death what's earthly within you, in Colossians 3.5. So there remains an earthly nature that must be put to death. Your heart is renewed. You actually desire to do the things that God wants. Your heart is grieved when you go astray. You get in a fight with your spouse. You say something you shouldn't have. It happens to us all. It pains you, not just because of the broken relationship with that individual, but because you love God and you know it's not consistent with his character, the hurt that you've done to that person. And so you return to him in faith first and you seek reconciliation with God and with your spouse. It's the desire of your heart. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus working in you to bring you back. Or maybe, maybe another example is you fail to honor the Lord somehow with your finances and it bothers your conscience And it just hangs like the hand of the Lord heavy upon you. But you know what brings you back? The Lord's grace working in your heart to make you put his will first and trust in his provision and reminding you that this is how he's called us to live. I'll just close with with this final example. So Moses actually envisioned that kind of heart trust in the Lord when he gave the Sabbath. One day out of seven, Israel was supposed to rest in complete dependence on God. And sadly, in Jesus' day, it had become exactly the opposite of that. It was a day to show off your righteousness by fastidiously avoiding all pretense of work, including caring for the poor and needy. And it's actually in this context of being chastised for picking grain with his disciples on the Sabbath that Jesus said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the Gildas. That's Jesus responding to the Pharisees. And Jesus being God knows what God has always wanted. He wants your heart and not your ritual commitment. Only come to him Give him your heart and he will make it yearn for what he yearns for. He will make you love him. Let's pray. Our God, how hard it is for us to manifest these feelings of love for you in our hearts and how difficult it would be if just left in our own strength to, to find the power to serve you and to love you with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength. Lord, thank you that through Jesus we, we have hope that you will actually do the work that's required to transform us and make us love you and, and walk with you. Lord, sometimes as believers we just need a little renewal a little step up in our walk God, please tear from us our selfishness, our pride. Help us to respond to your work in our lives. Lord, and if there's anyone here today that, that knows that their heart is opposed to you, well, Lord, all, all we can do is just ask that you would soften them and bring them to you this day. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Hunter Hayes, Associate Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to com That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.